After the unsettling events of 1 Samuel chapter 13, which is what we discussed last week, it's not surprising that King Saul was hesitant to make any aggressive moves against the Philistine forces. As we learned last week, Saul had started the day with 3,000 soldiers. But after Samuel's late arrival at the camp and his rebuke of Saul's decision to begin to make sacrifices without him, Saul's forces went from 3,000 down to 600. The Philistines, the enemy on the other hand, had mustered an immense force of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an untold number of troops. And if all that weren't bleak enough, 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 19 to 22 tells us that the Philistines did not allow the Israelites at this time to have any blacksmiths in their entire region due to the fear that they might make weapons. So there were only two men in all of Israel who had swords. Everybody else is apparently fighting with farm implements. Saul and his son Jonathan were the only two men in Israel's army who had proper swords with which to fight. And Samuel's words from 1 Samuel 13 verses 13 to 14 were still ringing in Saul's ears. And so Saul with his piddly little force was holding court under a pomegranate tree outside of his hometown of Gibeah. Remember, this is what Samuel had said to Saul. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So this is the scene as described by 1 Samuel. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree that is at Migron. The troops that were with him were about 600 men, along with Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, carrying an ephod. So the presence of a priest carrying an ephod may seem insignificant, but it's actually quite important. If this was the high priestly ephod, which presumably the text is implying that it was, then the ephod would have included two items called Urim and Thummim. No one's sure exactly what they were. The text of Scripture describes them really vaguely, but we do know what they were used for. The Urim and the Thummim were used to inquire of the Lord. Later in the same chapter, Saul would use them for this very same purpose, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 41, and it gets more detail there. So it's most likely that King Saul was sitting under the pomegranate tree, surrounded by his 600 remaining soldiers, trying to get God to answer him. And that seems like a wise thing to do. There was no possible way that 600 soldiers were going to prevail against the massive Philistine army if God did not help them. Saul seems to have tried to learn a lesson from his previous failure. This time, he was not going to make a move until God gave him the say-so. However, Saul's son Jonathan thought differently. Jonathan decided to test Samuel's words practically. What did Samuel mean when he said that God had chosen a new king? Did Samuel mean that God now would abandon everyone who had followed King Saul? Did Samuel mean now that Israel was doomed to fall under the dominion of the Philistines? 
Or possibly, did Samuel simply mean that Saul's discernment could no longer be trusted, that God was no longer with him, so we shouldn't go to him for advice? Jonathan tested the meaning of Samuel's words by action. So the first thing he did was he did not tell his father what he was doing. That was step number one. If God is no longer with King Saul, then Saul's counsel may not be useful. Second, he didn't involve, you notice this with Jonathan, he didn't involve any of the 600 remaining men in his plan. Jonathan went by himself with his armor bearer who was willing to go. So Jonathan is going to put himself at risk, but no one else. That's quite different than his father, who was happy to put people at risk to win his victories. But Jonathan was going to put no one at risk but himself. Third, Jonathan provided God a way of revealing to him whether God was going to be with them before the battle was engaged and before even the life of his armor bearer was put at stake. Now, Jonathan's actions in these verses that we read together may not look much like a prayer, at least not the way that we pray. After all, he doesn't formally quiet himself. He doesn't get on his knees. He doesn't bow his head. He doesn't ask the Lord to respond to him in the way that he's proposing. Jonathan instead prays with his actions. And this is not an unusual type of prayer in the scriptures. A former professor of mine named Marvin Wilson wrote a book called Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith, and he explains the difference between the way the scriptures often speak of prayer and the way we in the Western world think of it. He says this, For the Hebrews, spirituality did not mean turning inward. True piety was not simply the private nourishing of the virtues of one's soul. Rather, it meant to be fully human, every fiber of one's being alive, empowered and passionate and inspired service to God and humanity. Westerners often define spirituality as denying oneself, being detached from earthly concerns, and being intent on otherworldly values. By contrast, the Hebrews experienced the world of the spirit as robust, life-affirming, and this-worldly in character. Such was the spiritual orientation of the Hebrews. Unfortunately, the history of the church reveals that when Christians have become fixated upon finding the God of that other world to come, they've often missed finding the God of earth and history the creator of this world and the here and now. Unlike the Hebrews of Bible times who looked up to heaven but kept both feet squarely on the ground, Christians have not always learned so to balance themselves. Jonathan expected to find God not in a sanctuary somewhere or in a prayer service or after some extended period of meditation or after starving himself for a week, He expected to find God right on the road of his very life, right in front of him, where he was headed. Jonathan also knew that God had promised to be with his people who trusted in him. Now Saul may have disobeyed God, but Jonathan had not disobeyed God, and the people had not disobeyed God. Jonathan put himself at risk to attack a superior Philistine force as a way of faith-seeking understanding. As Jonathan confessed in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, which just means non-Jewish. It may be that the Lord will act for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan believed that to be true. He didn't just know someone said it once, and he hadn't just memorized it in Sunday school. He believed that to be true. This was his faith in God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
However, even though Jonathan was certain that God could allow 600 soldiers to defeat an army of tens of thousands, he could not be sure that God would be with them. Prior to Jonathan's time in the life of Gideon, God had used 300 men to defeat an army of many thousands from the nation of Midian. So there was that story. He knew it could be done, that God had done it before. However, in the life of Joshua, God had allowed the small town of Ai to rout a superior Israelite force because there was sin in the Israelite camp. So there were also stories of God not giving them victory. How would God act in this situation? Jonathan had no idea. So he stepped out in faith to discover God's willingness or unwillingness to be with them. Jonathan suggested that if the Philistines came down to them, then the battle was lost. Run for the hills. God was not with them. But if the Philistines invited them to come up into the garrison, then Jonathan would believe that God was with them and they would be victorious. What faith it must have taken for Jonathan to believe that God would meet him in real space and time in this moment and respond to his suggestion. How many times do we put ourselves at risk really believing what we've been told about God? To be invited up into the Philistine garrison was a death sentence. They were two men with one sword against probably 50 or 60 men. And it would leave Jonathan and his armor bearer without any way of retreat. And yet Jonathan told God that he would know God was with them if they were invited into this no-win situation. Again, Jonathan put himself at risk to find out if God was willing to be with his people or not. If not, Jonathan would be dead. If yes, then they would be victorious. So was Jonathan a fool? Is this foolhardy? I don't think so. With the size of the Philistine army, their victory was most certainly assured. And given that the whole conflict began because Israel took out a Philistine garrison at Geba, they would have certainly wanted blood. If the Philistines had won, Saul and his family would most likely have been executed as a warning to Israel, both of raising up a king to lead them in battle and of attacking the Philistines. So Jonathan was probably dead in either case. And he seems to have decided that it'd be better to put himself in the hands of God than into the hands of the enemy's whims. Jonathan's decision was full of faith, and it was also full of desperation. And by it, he tested the meaning of Samuel's words at the risk of his own life. Apparently, in rejecting King Saul, God had not rejected all the people. And he had not rejected Jonathan. God was with Jonathan. Miraculously, God answered his prayer, and God gave him victory over the garrison in Michmash. When Jonathan's attack was heard, Saul, suddenly brave, right? He had been sitting under that tree trying to figure out what to do next. When he hears what's going on, suddenly Saul is brave, and he and many of the Israelites, this was a funny scene from last week, when they originally ran, they ran into every hole in the ground. They jumped into wells, they jumped into graves, they jumped into caves. When they saw the size of that army, they ran for it. Well, here, when they hear Jonathan's victory, they all come out. Can you imagine how these guys coming out of the tombs to fight the Philistines? But when they heard the attack, Saul and many of the Israelites who had either defected to the Philistines or had gone into hiding came out and they joined the battle and God gave them victory. The question we've asked ourselves throughout this series is this one, and it's the most important one to ask. What does this tell us about God? 
even in the midst of a rebellious time, in the midst of rebellious leaders, and in the midst of cowardly people, God is willing to hear the prayers of those who trust in him. God did not hear Jonathan's prayer because God had chosen Jonathan to be king in his father's place. Jonathan's line was to end. God would not choose Jonathan to rule. Instead, God would choose a man from a small family in the tribe of Judah to be king. His name was David. So God didn't hear Jonathan's prayer because Jonathan was special. God heard Jonathan's prayer because Jonathan knew who God was. Jonathan humbled himself to test God's resolve at the risk of his own life and only his life. And Jonathan believed that God would meet him in real space and time of history. Did God have to hear Jonathan's prayer and give him victory? No. God doesn't have to do anything. There are plenty of accounts in the scriptures of God refusing to act on behalf of those who cry out to him. But God did affirm Jonathan's prayer. God had mercy on Israel. Even after Israel had rejected God as ruler by begging for a human king, even after that king had rejected God's command by failing to wait for God's prophet to come before making a pre-battle sacrifice, God did not forsake one who still walked in faith in him, one who dared to believe the stories handed down to him by his ancestors were true and that they spoke the truth about God and one who put his life at risk by living into those stories in real space and time. This is what the scriptures mean by faith. And God still calls us to walk in it. May those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.